Thanks for joining us on the New Beginnings Podcast, where our goal is to help people connect with Christ. We hope you enjoy listening. We, we have this unique way of looking at the Ten Commandments. Most of us, if you were raised in church, you look at it a certain way. Even if you were not raised in church, you just look at it a little bit further from a distance, but you see it the same way, because the perception of the Ten Commandments is simply this. These are God's laws. And if I keep them, God will like me. And if I don't keep them, God will be mad at me. Or we look at it like this. If I keep the rules really, really well, I'll get into heaven. And if I don't, uh-oh, I don't, maybe I, I'll be praying at the gate, like, please beg God, let me in. And we look at them as this kind of set of rules, maybe, that God even hangs out there as maybe a dividing line and says, this is where the good people are. And then this is where the bad people are. And it becomes this judging line of how we judge whether or not we have good behavior. Or if you're religious enough, it's the judging line where you look at everybody else and determine whether they're good people or whether they're bad people. And that was actually not the intent of the Ten Commandments at all. That it really, it never had anything to do with that. As a matter of fact, the reason why we know that is because when God introduces the Ten Commandments, he gives a preface. Now, how many of you, when you read, a, well, first, I hope you read books, but let's just assume everybody read books. If you read a book, how many know books have the, the preface, right? The preface, whatever you call it. How many of y'all read the preface? How many of y'all, you read it? How many of you skip right over that? I got to be honest, I used to be a preface skipper. I used to think, this is just a bunch of blah, blah, blah before we get to the good stuff. And what I didn't realize was, is that the preface is there just set to set the tone for everything that's going to follow. It's, it's no different than, than when somebody enters into a conversation, say, they say, let me preface this by saying this. And what they're saying is, I'm about to say something important, but if you miss the context of it, you'll miss everything. And God introduces this incredible preface. And the preface was this, I am the Lord, your God. I already delivered you out of Egypt and out of slavery. So before I say anything else, I need you to know I already loved you. I already rescued you. I already saved you. I already delivered you. We're together like I'm your God. It's personal. And I'm inviting you into this whole new thing. So before I say anything else, even though it's really, really important, I just need you to set the tone. And what we talked about was in essence this, is that God wasn't trying to give us rules to see if we would get in. God was giving us rules because we were already in, or we put it like this last week, this is that the 10 commandments or the rules are not a condition to your relationship with God. Like they don't dictate who gets in and who gets, you ever thought about this? Heaven's not mentioned in the book of Exodus. It was never about like who's getting into heaven and who's not getting into heaven. Heaven's not mentioned. They weren't a condition to your relationship with God. They were to confirm that you already had a relationship with God. And we said this even about our kids because we know this about our kids. You give your kids rules, right? Like don't punch your sister or don't run in the street or don't, you know, burn the cat, you know, whatever your rules are. And you have rules because they're your kids. You don't just walk around the neighborhood finding random people and strangers and start dishing out your rules to them. Why? Well, because that'd be weird and you'd have no friends. So the reality is, is that we give, and, and we know this about our kids too. Your kids don't even follow your rules. And yet you still claim them, like, don't you? Well, for the most part, we still, we still claim them. We get mad, we get frustrated. Sometimes we give out punishment even, but they never stop being our kids simply because they broke our rules. If that were the case, no one would have children. 
So again, the rules were not the condition to your relationship with your kids. They were the confirmation that they were your kids. And so in the Old Testament, it worked the same way. Is that God was inviting these people, and he does it in such a weird way. So before he gives them any rules, he actually says something really, really strange. He said, I want you to take a little lamb, a little furry quadruped, cute little thing, and I want you to kill it and then have a barbecue. It's really tender meat, I'm sure. It's... And they roasted it, and they, they all gathered around as a family, and some of them invited their neighbors over, and they had this big barbecue. And then God gave them the really, this is the weird part, was not because that was normal. That was just everybody did barbecues. You should still do barbecues. But the weird part was, he said, when you kill the lamb, I want you to take the blood and put it on like the doorpost. Like just smear it all over the doorpost. And what that will represent to me is, is that when judgment comes on Egypt, I'll pass right over your house. Because I'll know that if you just do this really kind of odd, strange command that doesn't always even make intellectual sense to you right away. But by coming underneath the blood of an innocent lamb, I'll pass, judgment will pass right over you. In the New Testament, see the symbolism was just so, so amazing and beautiful and wonderful. Because see, somewhere in the future, really, a couple thousand years later, there was a moment where John the Baptist looked at Jesus and he said, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And within just a short time period, he was put on a stake the same way that they would have killed the lamb and put the lamb on a stake. And then literally the blood. And what we do is, is we come underneath the blood of someone perfect and innocent that didn't deserve it. And by coming underneath the blood of that, even though it doesn't even make total sense to us, somehow judgment passes. See this beautiful imagery? Like it's, and that's what they were doing. They were partaking of this new, strange, weird, big idea. And in light of all of that, if you'll just trust me, and that was really it. It was God saying, if you'll just trust me with this kind of strange symbolic thing that you're going to do, you're in. And only in light of that do I want to give you any rules. And so today we'll cover the first two rules, which really, let me just put it like this. Most people lump the, the, the Ten Commandments into the first four, deal with your relationship with God. And the next six, deal with your relationship with people. I want to say that the first two deal with God and the, the last eight really deal with people. Or we could even look at it like this. If you can somehow pull off the first two, the next eight will take care of themselves. And, and if you can't do the first two, doing the next eight are virtually impossible. So really, let's put it another way. If you can do the first two and get your heart and mind wrapped around the first two, the next eight are really just the application of the first two. And these first two rules are huge in importance. And so let's start again in Exodus chapter 20. Everybody say, okay. Here we go. And God spoke all these words. This is the preface. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And this is it right here. This is the first rule. Everybody ready? You shall have no other gods before me. Or literally, in addition to me would probably be maybe even the cleaner way of saying it or the way we would think about it. So the first big rule is you're to have no other gods in addition to me. It's me and there's nobody else. And just so you know, like this seems somewhat like, like a duh moment for you maybe where you're like, well, yeah, God just parted the Red Sea and fed them and did this and all. They're like, are you kidding me? Of course they would look to God. But I want you to know like for them, this was so radical I want you to know, like, in the history of humanity, nobody had ever really done this before. 
There was no culture, no people group that we can find in any of history that looked to one God to answer all their needs and to discount the idea that there are no other gods. That was just like radical leap forward culturally because for them, think about where they had just come from. They just lived 400 years in a place called Egypt where when they needed the sun, well, they'd go worship and pray and sacrifice to the sun god. And when they needed the rain, well, they'd go over there and worship and pray and sacrifice to the rain god. And when they needed the, the, the land to be fertile, there was a fertility god. Or when you needed to have kids, there was a god for that. Or when you needed just, there was a god for everything. And, and here's the deal. This wasn't just something they'd experienced for all of human history thus far. This is the way the world would really work for the next couple of thousand years. Even into like, think about Greek and Roman culture and pagan culture. It was always this idea that whatever you needed, you just had to go find that God. And you had to figure out a way to like make that God happy, appease that God, get in with that God, somehow manipulate that God to do something for you. And so this was a huge huge leap forward in all kinds of like cultural things. But here's, here's what I want to get you to see. Now, remember, I, I mentioned this last week, but we haven't been able to dive into it yet. And I said this, you can tell a lot about a person by what rules they give, right? So I want you to think about your mama, think about your dad, think about your boss, and they have little rules, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and their rules reflect who they are, right? So like if you come into my house and like if you're our guest, we don't care what's anything, but like the kids know when they come into the house, they got to take their shoes off, right? That's mama's rule. Mama's rule is no shoes in the house because I don't know where you've been walking and you were in the backyard walking through dog poo or you were in some bathroom somewhere and God knows what's on that floor. And so my, my, my wife is borderline germa, you know. And so the bottom of shoes are apparently a place where germs live. And so shoes do not just track through my house. So what does that tell you about my wife? That girl clean. <laughs> and praise the Lord. You know what I'm saying? Like, I like clean. Clean is good. I'm glad my wife is clean. I don't know that I'm that clean, but like she keeps everything clean, so I get to always live in clean. Right? So like, I'll give you another rule. This is another rule. So like my wife sends me to the store, and then she, I, I, she gives me a text message so that I can just follow the list. You know what I'm saying? Never send a man to the store without a list. It's just, that's dumb. And so but, but then she's, it's really, really important. She'll put like, like, it's not just bananas, organic bananas. And like organic will be in like all caps where she's like, she's like yelling at me, or, organic bananas. So like, that's the rule. Don't you bring home no, just random bananas. Bless God. Those need to have been raised in, in a beautiful environment with no toxicity or pesticides or germicides or things. What does that tell you about my wife? She's organic. Not just clean in the house, clean living, clean, you know, everything clean up in here too. So my point is, is that my wife's rules reflect who she is. Is that, is that fair to say? And you're the same way too. You have your weird things or your OCD things or whatever they are. So, but God has rules. And you're, what you're going to see is, is when we look at all these rules, these 10 commandments, Every one of them will show us a new insight into the character and nature of God because rules reflect who a person is. Now think about this first rule. I want you to have no other gods beside me in addition to me, no other gods other than me. I want to be your one and only God, which means this. This is huge. I want you to get your mind around this. Recognition is more important than obedience. He hasn't even given you a thing to do or not to do. It was just me first. That's it. I don't know if that's a rule, right? Like, that's not like a don't wear your shoes in the house or only buy organic bananas or don't kill people, by the way. Like, that's a do or a don't. Did you kill anybody today? Everybody say, no, good, good. I just really risked a lot right there. I just, 
There's about three or four cops in here, though, so be careful. Um, okay, so my, my point is, is that it's not even a rule to obey or disobey. It's about a, a thing that he says, I want you to recognize me first and foremost above all else. This is the most important thing that you can remember is that I am first. And here's what you need to know too, is that when God says that he's first, I need, like, please dial in, don't, if you missed the rest of the sermon, you, you might want to just pay attention to this part right here. This is the best part, in my opinion. It was just subjective. But this is what, this is what I believe, is that God wasn't trying to have you make a list of who's first and then who's second and then who's third and then who's fourth. Because what, if I'd look to a man and say, hey, God's first and your marriage is second, that would be like, okay, well, then I give God my time and money first and then I go give my wife money and time second, right? But God doesn't want to be first and then another thing be second. What God wants is to be first in all things. So it's not that God wants to be first and your marriage be second. He's saying, I want to be first in your marriage. So like when it comes to you and your wife, I want to be first because in your marriage, I'll make your marriage blessed if I'm the, or let's say first, I want to be in the center of your marriage that everything else revolves around. So when it comes to like you and your crazy kids, I don't want there to be like this decision where I'm choosing between God or I'm choosing between my kids because that's dumb. God wants you to love your kids. God wants you to love your spouse. So God's not wanting you to choose him first over another person. What he's wanting you to do is choose him first in all things. So God wants to be first in your parenting. Do you see the difference? Like, it's not about do I do this or do I that. I want you to be, I want God to be first in your decision making. I want God to be first in your finances. I want God to be first. I want God to be first and foremost and above all in all things. You see the difference? I'm not telling you that your wife is second and your kids are third and your friends are fourth. No, no, in your friendships, I want God to be first. Are you, are you seeing the difference there? It's a paradigm shift that needs to take place because God's not trying to say, I want you to order me and me be at the first. I'm saying I am the first. It is my preeminence that I'm always the highest and above all in all things. Everybody, somebody, somebody say amen. That's good. That, that's okay. Good. So yeah, I, sometimes I just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask for it, you know, in case maybe some of y'all were still thinking, I don't know, but That's the point of God saying, I am first, and I want you to have nothing else in addition to me. I want to be first and first in all things. So then it goes on to say this now. So after he says, have no other gods before me, this is the next verse, verse four. And it sounds like it's the same verse, like he's just doubling down, but he's not. There's something distinct here. He says, not only do you have no other gods before me or in addition to me, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything above, in heaven above, or the earth beneath, or even in the waters below. Now, again, it just sounds like, okay, we get it, we get it. And he's saying something different, though. And this is the difference between having no other gods. What he's saying is this, and this is, remember I said we're like having one god was a cultural leap forward? This was too. Because in every pagan society, in every polytheistic society, they always had a temple and a statue and a trinket and a thing. And everybody had a thing. So when like the sun God had his own idol and his own statue, and what God was saying is this, don't you dare shrink me down. Whatever you come up with, whether you dig it up out of the earth, you fish for it in the water, you just look up at the clouds, whatever it is that you find and try to shrink me into, it's too small. It would pale in comparison to me. I'm too holy. 
I'm too majestic. I'm too big. I, I, you, you cannot dumb me down. You can't compartmentalize me. Well, let's just we'll put it like this. Don't make me something that's manageable. I shouldn't be something you can stick in your pocket and take some places or sometimes decide just to leave at home. Because you know what I'm talking about? You're bringing him to church, but you ain't bringing him up in the club. And so like... He's like, he's like, no, I'm up in the club, whether you want me there or not. Like, I'm in all places, so like, you can't leave me. And you can't, you can't shove me in a drawer. You can't leave me on a nightstand to collect dust. It doesn't work like that. You can't confine me to a location. You can't compartmentalize me. And he was saying this to this ancient culture. We don't do stuff like this. We don't have trinkets. We don't have little idols. We don't have statues. Well, I hope you don't. But if you do, let's, let's talk about that. Um, we have found new ways to do this. See, we don't confine God to a location. Of course not. We just go to church on Sunday morning. And that's our religious routine. And trust me, I want you here on Sunday morning, but do you think God is limited to Sunday morning at 10 a.m. or 10 to 15-ish, depending on when you show up? You know? Do you think God's limited to a place? I mean, this is an event center. This is even like a holy place. You know, like we go downtown and find some place with a steeple and stained glass windows. Now, that's holy, People in here do bar mitzvahs and quinceaneras. This place isn't even that holy. Does that make sense? It's just, it's just a place. But, but we confine God. We begin to make him manageable. We decide where we'll take him, when we'll leave him at home, which days we'll honor him, and which days we kind of don't think about him. I'm just talking about other people. This is really you. Or, or what we do is we just find ways to compartmentalize God. Because, you know, when we look at the categories of our life, that's how we look at life. Is that we, you know, like guys, we have our work life. And we don't really talk about our work life. And we come home and she asks us how our day was. It's fine. I don't want to talk about my work life. My work life is over here. My home life is over here. And when I got to deal with them kids, that's my parenting life. And when I got to do, do the family vacation, okay, that's family life. And I got all these different little compartments. And then, you know what, guess what? On Sunday morning, I go to church. And that's my spiritual life. And you know what you just did? You just missed the whole point. There's no such thing as a spiritual life. There's just life. Everything is spiritual, isn't it? I don't know if you noticed that, but like the people you interact with are spiritual. The friends, the family, the kids, how you treat your money. God said that was spiritual. Like how, how you make moral decisions, that's spiritual. Like how, how you do anything in life is spiritual. It's all, so there's no such thing as my, this is my spiritual life. So on Sunday mornings, I'm really spiritual. But then like every other day of the week, I just do my own thing. God said, no, no, no. Now you have made this little trinkety thing and you tried to shove me into the trinkety thing and your trinkety thing was Sunday morning at a not so holy place. That's what, you, that's what you had done. And, and so what God's saying is, is that don't you dare, whatever you do, don't you dare shrink me down. And so if we were to combine the two rules together, this is what it might look like. God is saying, I want to be the center of everything and don't shrink me down to something that you can manage. God. I feel like that needs to be like over here though, like just go like right there. Anyway. What God's saying is like, hey, I, no other gods in addition to me, other than me, before me, nothing. I'll be the center of everything. And don't, don't shrink me down and try to manage me. And this is what you'll find. Remember I said that the first two take care of everything else? Because if you did this, then like, you wouldn't worry about having to murder somebody. You would trust God to vindicate you. You don't have to worry about stealing. You would trust God to be your provider. You wouldn't, when God is the center of your heart and the center of your marriage, then adultery is not something that's on your mind too often. It's not something that's going to be a light thing or an easy thing for you to get into. So like when God is first in all things and you never shrink him down and compartmentalizing him and compartmentalize him, then just following all these other, because let's be honest. Remember I said recognition is more important than obedience. 
That's what he's establishing here in these first two commands. If you don't have these two, everything else is you just keeping a list of rules. The rest of them, like, did I commit adultery today? Did I murder anybody today? Did I steal today? You're just going through a list of rules. This right here is about you recognizing God first and foremost above all things. And let's, let, let me show this was so important to your heavenly father that he adds something to it. He's not done yet. We don't jump into rule three yet. Look at what he says. Let's keep, let's keep reading. Exodus 20 verse five says this. Not only do I want you to, want you to put me first and center of all things and don't, don't make trinkets and idols and statues and don't dumb me down. Verse five says this. You don't even bow down to them or worship them for... I, the Lord, your God, remember it's personal, I am a, I'm a jealous God. So remember, remember when I said all rules reflect what people are really all about? He doesn't even hide it now. He's just like, look, I'm just gonna let you know. The reason why this is such a big deal, I'm jealous. Now, whenever I talk to people that, that like hear that, they're like, oh, wait a minute. I thought jealousy was bad. Well, isn't, well, I thought, because in 1 Corinthians 13, that poem that they read at the wedding that I was at, when they said that in love, there's no jealousy, then, then why would, uh, and, and, here, and here's the difference, okay? Get, there's a difference between jealous of someone versus jealous for someone. God is not jealous of you. You actually don't have anything that he needs. I don't know if you know this or not. God doesn't need you. He just desires you. Does that make sense? So God is not jealous of you. God is jealous for you because he deeply loves you and cares about you. And this is, like, I, I want you, I'm jealous for my wife. So, like, if we were out in public and some dude started, like, hitting and macking on my wife, that ain't gonna fly. That's not okay with me. We're in the gym working out. I'm over there doing curls. And some dude comes up, macks on my wife. I'm gonna drop those tens right on his foot. You know what I'm saying? I'm gonna let him, I'm gonna let him know. You better back up off my girl. Why? Because we're together. That's the thing. We love each other, you know? So like my point is, I'm jealous for her. I will hurt you if necessary. Just saying, I'm just warning you. I don't want you to be caught off guard. Because like, you know, again, so let's just keep going. So I am the Lord. I am jealous. I'm a jealous God. Next verse says this. This is the second part of verse 5. And this, this gets strange here. He goes, I'm a jealous God, punishing the children for, their, for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, now I'm going to be honest real quick here. This gets intense. Because then you're like, whoa, 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 you're going you're to punish my kids? What, what, why? Punish me, you know? And, and, and here's the deal. I don't really know how this works exactly. I just don't. I think that most of the time when God talks about punishment or consequences, it's really just simply the byproduct of sinful decisions. Because I don't know if you ever noticed this, like God doesn't have to punish you, sin just does it for you. You know what I'm saying? So I think, and I, let, me, let me add to this, I don't even know if this applies to us. Get remember, this, was written, this wasn't written to you, this was written for you, right? So this was written to a bunch of slaves that came out of Egypt that became a nation. So like, I don't even know if this completely applies to us, but there's a principle in here that certainly reflects the value and the nature of God, and it shows you what's important to him, so don't dismiss this. And here's, here, let me just say that. Here, I counsel people. Some of y'all know that. And I know for a fact that this is true. Now, I don't know how it works, but I know it's true. Because when I got you in my office and we start kicking over cans and figuring out why you're tore up from the floor up, 
eventually we realized that like, you know what? Mom was dysfunctional. Dad had issues. And somehow those issues got projected onto me. I don't know if that was just purely genetically. Sometimes that's nature. Sometimes that's nurture. I don't know how, but like think about all the issues. Like I got issues that I've had to deal with in my life and I recognized in my 20s, I'm like, yeah, I got that from my dad. And I know for a fact that somehow those consequences, those things, those, those repercussions, they do follow through on us. And not only that, like you know this to be true if you have adult children. You ever look at your kids? I don't even have adult children, but I look at my kids and I'm like, yep, that's my fault. I did that one. I can't even get that mad. I mean, I do still, but for, and I act like it's totally his fault. But, um, or, or when she does something crazy, like my daughter climbs on things, throws things, like just rambunctious and wild. And then, you know, my mom is watching the kids and you're like, that's you. And then I say, no, mom, that's you. <laughs> it came through me to her originated with you so but my point is is that like i i push stuff up onto my kids i'm dishing things out to my kids sometimes voluntarily sometimes involuntarily sometimes i do you ever do this as a parent and think god why did i do that why did i say that what was i thinking you ever look at your adult children now and you think man i did this wrong i did that wrong if i could go back in time if i knew then what i knew now and so what i'm saying is this is that there's definitely something going on that we can't always quantify but there's something that gets passed along from one person to the next person but watch this there's there's hope there's beauty here so not only does he say that he will punish the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but, everybody say, but, you can go to the next, you go, yep, there we go, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So this is what I want you to get you to see now, because you could sit there and say, well, God, that's not fair. Like you can't punish kids because of what their parents did. That's not fair. Which, by the way, let me help you out theologically. God is not fair. You ever do that like when you're a kid? Like, that's not fair. And you talk to your mom or your dad, and then what they tell you? Bam, there you go. Like, we all heard it, right? We all heard it. And if you're in here today, you never heard that. Life's not fair. Just, just let me just add on. So your mom and dad understood something, that life is not fair. Well, I want you to know that like, God's not fair, but, but here's what you need to know. You don't want God to be fair. Because if God were fair, you'd be worse off, not better off, because God, remember the punishment went to three or four generations, but his love went to a thousand generations? Is God fair? I, last time I checked, if you said, Todd, do you want three or four dollars? Or do you want a thousand dollars? I said, I'm taking the thousand dollars. What for? Nothing. I'm like, that's not fair, but I don't care. You, nobody's ever blessed you, right? You ever been blessed in life? And you'd be like, no, 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 no. I can't receive that blessing. It's not fair. There's somebody clearly more deserving of that promotion. I will not take it. You're a liar. You ever anybody hand you like tickets to the game? Nope. There are fans that are more dedicated than I am. That deserve those 50-yard line seats more than me. I will not take them. You're a liar. You ought to take the tickets. The point is this, grace is not fair. Grace is never fair. God always gives more than he takes. God always blesses more than he ends up giving or allowing consequences to happen. You don't even want God to be fair. 
So don't ask God to be fair. You don't want that. Don't ever ask God to be fair. He's already unfair in a way that benefits you only because even when he gives consequences, it's short, but when he gives blessing and love, it's for a thousand generations. Somebody say thank you, God, and amen, and all that good stuff. And so, so anyway, so, so God's, God's not fair. But this is the point I want you to see is that if you choose, this is what God's really saying, if you choose to take me out of the center, there will be consequences. Whenever I am not first and foremost and preeminent and the center of all things, I want you to get this because he gives you a command, but it's so important that he attaches a warning to it. And the warning is this, is anytime I'm not at the center, there will be consequences. And if you, I dare say, you may want to, you may not, if you begin to reflect on your life, your decisions, the times in your life where God was the center, you usually saw things get into a natural flow and rhythm and blessing and things were usually, and even when they didn't go right, it was as if God was with you through it all. And then there are other times where you knew you would totally taking God out of the center. And this is where we, we live with regret or we live with guilt or we live with the if I knew then what I knew now type scenarios or we live with the if I could only go back in time because at some point in our journey, we took God out of the center and things began to unravel. And that's the, the way life is. And this is the consequence. This is the, this is the but, but look at your God, your heavenly father is so loving that he's like imploring you, put me first above all things and watch the blessing that flows. And any time that I'm not the center of all things, they're just, things will unravel. I was, um, I had a birthday this week, by the way. I turned 38 years old, if you ever wondered how old I was. I know I look probably like 30, 31. I'm actually a little bit older than that. But, so, I, what'd you say? 25, thank you, even better. Um, so, so, for, for my birthday, I, yeah, I, I did a few things, but one of the things that I did is I went, I went go-kart racing. Has anybody ever been go-kart racing? There's a great place in town here to go do that. And I go go-kart racing, and if you know me, I'm a, I'm a little competitive. Um, I have, like, I just, I want to win. Um, I don't like losing. Just, that, that's the way I am. And so I've been, I've been to this place a few times over the years, and, and, and because I want to win and because I hate to lose, I analyze and dissect things. I don't know if y'all are like that. Like I'll break it down to its core and figure out like, how, because racing is, is just this competitive thing. And, and early on when I would start racing at this place, I just would go all out. I'd be sliding and skidding and, and drifting. And I loved slamming people into the wall. Like I had no problem. I had no problem. Rub, rubbing is racing. Can I get a amen? Days of thunder. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that's the way that I would race. But then I would learn like my lap times and dudes were just able to beat me or I couldn't post it this time. And so I remember I went, and this is a couple times ago, I went to the guy and I'm like, hey, how do I get better? And he goes, oh, you, and he took me over to this like picture they had drawn up of the racetrack. And what they had done is they had the racetrack, but then they had a line around it. And he goes, you got to follow the racing line. And I'm like, okay, what do you, what do you mean? He goes, and he's basically saying was this, is that there's a mathematical formula. It's non-negotiable. There is a line on the track that if you take the car on that line, you'll optimize your time. And you can't get any faster by getting off this thing. Actually, you'll get slower by getting off this thing. And what you've got to do is at all times, stay on the racing line and then hit it as fast and as hard as you can go, but it's gotta be on the racing line. And I started like, this, this is what it means to have God at the center. It means that there is a, there's a path. There's a place that God holds in your life that puts you on a path that is the optimal setting, the optimal line. And if you get off of that line at any point, you know what happens? You start to fall back. Or you know what happens when you push it too hard in one direction? 
you start sliding and spinning, you start losing time. At any point in this, in this race that when you get off the racing line, you're losing valuable time. You're giving up something. Sometimes you're crashing, spinning out, colliding. You're get, Somewhere in there, you're missing it. And when I learned this, I promise you, I went back and I started to say, well, how do I take that corner? And how do I zip out of this line? And, how do I, and I, I, I promised, like, it just changed the way that I saw the racetrack. That it, yeah, it, it, there's times where it's fun and you want to bump people or whatever, but like, to get the most out of life, what Jesus would call the abundant life, you've got to find the racing line. And it's the line that produces the optimal amount of success, blessing, significance, whatever it is that God's trying to put you in position for. And this is what I know about life too. This is what I know about people. Some of us, we're over here. <laughs> and then we'll come back onto the racing line. And we're like, yes. And then we just slide back over here. And we're constantly, you ever wonder why you feel like sometimes you just can't break out of your funk? You feel like you can't overcome that obstacle. You feel like you're living in like perpetual mess or defeat or drama. It's because you live a whole life sliding onto and then back out of the racing line. At some point, you've got to commit yourself to the line. And the line is this, is that God is not just first and above all in some kind of churchy Sunday morning spiritual way is that he is first and foremost in the center of all things. And if I'll put him there, and then don't dare take moments where I shrink him down or put him over here or stick him in a box or minimize him. If I will commit to this, I'll find that perfect line. I'll find that abundant flow to life. That's where your heavenly father wants you to be. Now, here's the deal. Most of us resist this, and I'll, I'll tell you why I think we resist this. Most of us when we, when we get rules given to us, we're always trying to figure out what somebody's keeping us from. You ever felt like that before? Like, wait a minute, why did he say that? What thing are you keeping me from? And we feel like God's working an angle. Like God's preventing us from experiencing some type of fun or thrill or excitement, or maybe there's something that God is hiding from us. And what you realize is this, is that God's not keeping you from anything. God's trying to put you on that perfect path, that perfect line that leads to his abundant life. Because ultimately, and we'll close with this, is God is not, this is not the point of the Ten Commandments, God is not trying to make bad people good. If we would think this, we would think, wow, he failed, we failed. God, the Ten Commandments, God is not trying to, pe to keep bad people good. Try to, this is what he's trying to do. He freed them from slavery. He freed them from their bondage. And now he's got them free. And he's saying, I'm going to set you up so that you can live free for the rest of your life. So you can find that sweet spot where you live in my abundance. Let's pray this morning. So God, today we need to struggle with and wrestle with and contemplate. God, did, did we stick you into a compartment where you're just the religious thing? Or, or maybe we want you in most things but not all things. Or maybe it is that, God, we just call you in when the category falls apart, and when you put it all back together or it finds its own rhythm again, we push you back out. Somehow, some way, God, maybe we were on that perfect path, and then we slid off. God, where did we go wrong? What season of life, what relationship was it? What category of life did I push you out of? Because at some point, God is pleading with us 
At some point, we somehow took him out of being the first and the center of all things. And so, God, as a people, we come to you today and we just humbly ask for your help. We ask for your forgiveness. God, we want to be on that perfect path. We want you first and at the center of all things, God. I pray that you would reveal to us, like, like Holy Spirit, like, give us that thought, give us that idea, give us that epiphany, give us that wow, aha moment where all of a sudden we realize this is the season of life, this is the relationship, this is the category, this is the place where I missed it. And God, help me to come back on to that perfect path where I'm in relationship with you and you are the center of all things, God. Lord Jesus, that is our prayer today. God, we humbly ask, it is in your son's holy name that we pray. We all said, amen. Can we give the Lord a big hand clap this morning? Thanks again for listening to the New Beginnings Podcast. For more information on New Beginnings Church, please visit us online at nbchurch.tv.